0: Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning into another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacks.com. Now on with the show. Okay, Juliana, are you ready? I am ready. All right. Three, two, one, let's jam. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due
1: to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.
0: For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. And check out our sponsor. This season, it's, well, it's me. People ask me all the time, Corey, what do you actually do? Well, back in 2008, I co-founded Newfound Research. We're a quantitative investment and research firm dedicated to helping investors proactively navigate the risks of investing through more holistic diversification. Whether through the funds we manage, the exchange-traded products we power, or the total portfolio solutions we construct, like the Structural Alpha Model Portfolio Series, we offer a variety of solutions to financial advisors and institutions. Check us out at www.thinknewfound.com. And now on with the show. In this episode, I speak with Giuliana Bordogoni, Director of Specialist Strategies at Man AHL. In her role, Juliana oversees the firm's strategies that require specialist knowledge. This includes, for example, alternative markets, options trading, credit, and machine learning. We spend a good deal of time discussing alternative markets, a focus of Juliana's in both her current role and her prior as the head of alternative markets. We discuss the potential benefits and challenges of introducing alternative markets to existing CTA programs, the unexpected roadblocks in doing so, and the opportunities that Giuliana is most excited about today. We also discuss machine learning, which is treated as its own unique class of strategy rather than as a technique, and why Giuliana is so excited about systematic credit today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Giuliana (music) Bordigoni. Giuliana, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you here. You have the distinct honor of being the last guest this season, though certainly last but not least. So very excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And I'm glad to be the last one of the season.
0: Let's start, for the listeners who maybe don't know who you are, with a quick introduction and in your background.
1: So I've been a uh, Man HL for about 15 years now. Before joining HL, I was doing a PhD, so I came straight from uh, university. My PhD was about utility maximization, so it was about mathematical finance, and it was fairly theoretical. So after the PhD, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and I said, "Okay, let's give it, let's give a try to the industry for a few months, and then if I like it, I'll stay; otherwise, I'll just go back to academia." So I took an internship at Manehel for six months, and you see, after fifteen years, I'm still in the same place, but not doing the same job. In my defense. So obviously, having been 15 years in a place, I've covered several roles, starting from more like the signal generation and doing more like real quant research. And then now I would say that it's more about managing people and projects than actually me doing the research itself, which I miss a bit, but I enjoy the rest as well.
0: Now, in your career at MAN AHL, you've worked on momentum strategies, mean reversion strategies, volatility strategies, credit strategies, alternative markets, and machine learning strategies. What was the most challenging project you've tackled so far in your career?
1: I feel quite lucky. And that's to have been exposed to so many projects. That is the reason why I'm here. So I really enjoyed that part. But that has been one of the main challenges. So just to change topic. Every time and every time, uh, learn about the new asset class or learning about the new kind of strategies and helping and supporting maybe other people, but also being productive because it's not that I could change just for the sake of my learning. Right, the point is to be productive, and that has been definitely one of my main challenges. But I'm not trying to avoid to answer your question. your question is that which one? So let me tell you which one I find the most challenging. And I think most likely is machine learning. The reason is because it's the one that is less in my background. I told you that my background is more on like stochastic processes, mathematical finance. So it's quite different from uh, machine learning and these kind of techniques. So for sure that is part of the story. The other part of the story is that it is the one that is less transparent. If you think about all the other projects I worked on, I mean, I can always explain you what the strategy is doing. I can have an expectation of what the strategy would do in certain scenarios. And if you think of machine learning, you don't have that ability. If you have it, to me, it's not the point of machine learning, because then you can use something simpler. To me, you want to use machine learning to try to discover things that you can't see. And therefore, it makes it less transparent. That is the other part of the challenge. But at the end, is also like you have to think that I'm a quant, I like details. And in machine learning, because I told you it's not my background, I need to rely on other people. And that's also like the other part of the struggle. It's also, probably it's also personal struggle in accepting that you need to delegate to people who are more expert than I am.
0: We're definitely going to touch on machine learning later in the episode, but it's rare for me to have a guest on that's had both such a breadth of experience in different areas of quantitative finance, but who's also gone quite deep in several of them. So I want to spend a little bit of time on the full arc of your career, and maybe we can start with your role as head of alternative markets, where I know you spent a considerable amount of time trying to incorporate asset classes that weren't historically touched by CTAs. At a high level, can you explain maybe both the why and the what Behind this, I'm really particularly curious as to how you thought about identifying alternative asset classes that might have the properties you were looking to exploit in the trading systems you already had set up. So
1: you're right. I like details. And that is probably coming from my background, probably character. I don't know. So I hope that I can give you some details about what I've learned in the last 15 years. Going to the alternative market side, the why is the easiest. So the why is diversification. You can think of momentum. And when you think about momentum, we know that is a relatively weak effect that appears in market at different times. And the best you can do is to try to capture it on as broad number of assets as possible. So the why is the search for diversification. The difficulty is the what because you need to come up with a list of markets that are really diversifying your portfolio and you need to search in the liquid space. So here we are talking when I was doing alternative market list we were talking about trading momentum in this new market and therefore for a momentum system, I would say that you need to be able to trade on a daily basis, which define the space of the markets that you can trade and then the when you Find new market is like looking at, you can go through the exchanges and see what is traded. You can talk to brokers and find out what you are missing, what they think that could be an interesting asset. And obviously, we have our internal experts that will suggest markets. So the list is fairly large. And with time, we have gone through, I would say, quite a big part of it. You said you're curious to know about the properties that we're looking at that I'm looking for in these markets. And I told you one, which is daily liquidity. Second, I told you already, is diversification, meaning that I don't think that you want to trade alternative markets to capture a more expensive effect that you can capture in traditional space. So liquidity, diversification, and then it needs to be suitable for momentum. Meaning that I believe that momentum can arise in different market, in all the markets at different times for periods of time. The point is that, but there are some markets that they might have some other drivers, like a peg currency for which a momentum system is not suitable. So that is the other properties. Is it momentum being suitable without wanting to cherry pick, but sort of broad fundamental properties. And then obviously, there are the ways like, is this market, are the bid offer in this market tight enough that it will be profitable after the cost? So I would say these are the major question that I try to answer.
0: I'd love to stick with that question of, is momentum suitable? Because for many of these assets that we're talking about, they might trade OTC and you might not have easily available data for them. So my question would be, when you're thinking about exploring whether a new asset can fit in the system, are you trying to come up with a hypothesis as to why momentum or trend might emerge, for example, because of the players or the structure of the market, or are you ultimately letting the historical data speak for the asset class?
1: Well, I would say a bit of both in the sense that I don't want to cherry pick. So I think, as I said earlier, you can find momentum in markets at different time. If I just look at a back test, it might be that that market is going to start trend tomorrow and I'm going to miss out. So I'm really looking for diversification for different drivers. That is the main thing that I look at. But as I say, you need still to be comfortable that there is a chance for that addition to be profitable, meaning if I made example of a peg currency you can't know if there is a momentum system can't know if a central bank is going to intervene on the currency itself so in that case it doesn't make sense so when i mean fundamentals i'm trying to look at reason why it can't trend really and they need to be like sort of obvious big reasons if it makes sense
0: i would suspect that one of the biggest challenges to this whole endeavor was in gathering and cleaning data as well as setting up the operations to trade some of these asset classes, particularly those that are trading OTC. And just to make things a little more concrete for listeners, some of these asset classes might be, for example, credit default swaps or inflation swaps or even crypto potentially. And so my question to you would be, how do you face these challenges and how do you weigh the trade-off of the costs in doing so, particularly when you might not know the costs up front, Versus the potential portfolio benefits that come from introducing these new asset classes.
1: I think that you are right. I mean, especially the more you do this job, it means that you have gone through the markets that they are a higher capacity, that they are more liquid. And the more you do this, the more you end up with a pool of markets that is less liquid still daily trading, as I said earlier, but less liquid than the others you have added already, which me- and they might be more difficult for many reasons. You might need some pricing code that you don't have, and the capacity they're adding might be limited. I think that here big firms have an advantage because obviously they have like more, like larger, they tend to have larger team, which means that there might be more appetite to do the extra work, even if the added value is less. But obviously, the way in which you do it is prioritizing. Right? You start from the one that are going to add more, and then you go through the list. But I still think that there is loads of appetite on my side to look also at the one that, where the trade-off it means that you are going to work a lot. And add like a small market. I still think they're worth it.
0: Were there any unexpected challenges that you faced? i know as researchers we often hand wave things like what goes on in the back office and and account operations as you moved from the data and research to actual implementation were there any interesting roadblocks or challenges that you hadn't expected
1: oh absolutely and you're right when you do research and especially the quant you always think about how do i model this price series how do i get into the system and how am i going to trade it on a daily basis that is your concern but there is way more to it and you mentioned back office but there is also all the legal side so the legal and the compliance side and one second ago you mentioned crypto and when you look into crypto the legal and the compliance side are really the big hurdle so to cross i'm not saying anything controversial if i say that crypto are more susceptible to financial crime than other asset classes and therefore If you want to add it to your portfolio, you really need to work with experts, like specialists on the legal team and the compliance team that will need to make sure that you are not inadvertently breaching any regulations. But also, you have risks that you might not think of when you trade other financial assets, like theft risk, or even more simply, how to actually hold the coins overnight if you have a certain type of investor, like US investor and they need to have a US custodian. So these kind of risks are a bit outside the usual one space. But you even have other risks. You have like sort of the risk that in volatile market, think of like a market that you can't trade, that's not clear, that you have trade, for example, bilaterally. Then what happens? That there is high volatility in the markets, and then bank margins will rise. Now, what does it mean that bank margin uh, rises? It means that the capacity of the bank to offer intermediation is reduced. So again, you have to deal with the fact that you might have to control your position in this environment. And then obviously, there is the biggest challenge when you look into the smaller markets that is liquidity. Liquidity might be changing. You might have done a good job assessing it, but simply might dry up while you're trading it. And so again, you need a bit of flexibility to keep assessing it and keep adjusting whatever your assumption have been.
0: One of the points that you've made a couple times now is that the markets you're looking to incorporate should have daily liquidity for momentum and trend strategies. I really have two follow up questions to this. The first is Is that a requirement or constraint that you think can be relaxed without necessarily losing the efficacy of the strategies? And second, how do you think about assessing that need in OTC markets? where both live and historical liquidity may not be easily assessed.
1: I think that for momentum, you need, the way in which I see momentum is like you want to capture a trend, but there will be a reversal and you need to be dealing with it, which means that you will need to be scaling your position and possibly turn it around. Which means that if you look at markets that are less liquid than that, you might get stuck in a position when you want to turn around. And I just don't think is the kind of property that you want in a momentum strategy. So I think that for me, a momentum strategy is a strategy to capture this trend in a wide pool of markets, but these pool of markets are like sort of daily traded. In terms of the OTC market, the point is that how do you assess the liquidity? Because it might be more opaque than for markets that are exchange traded. I would say that, in general, uh, in the last 10 years after the financial crisis, loads of EOTC markets are now cleared, which means that they are less opaque than they were uh, 10 years ago. But there will be still some that they are not. And the way in which you deal with it is like trying to be as engaged with the brokers, the people you are executing with, as much as possible. So most of these markets will have to be traded via a trader, they are not automatically executed, which means that the trader has a relationship with the executing broker that is requesting a quote from. And so there is a sort of constant assessment of the liquidity. But as I said, as of today, there are quite a few volume data that you can find, for example, interest rate swaps or for like default swaps that are some of the asset classes that you mentioned earlier. So they are becoming more transparent from that point of view.
0: A consistent theme this year in my discussions with different systematic futures traders has been the idea of pure trend versus more broadly diversified futures strategies. Coming out of 2008, pure trend was obviously really attractive. And then I think the struggles of the 2010s caused a lot of managers to start incorporating diversifying strategies. How do you think about these trade-offs? And what do you think the implications are for allocators looking to incorporate one approach versus the other? within their portfolio.
1: When you mention broadly diversified strategy, do you mean like sort of momentum on a wider, like sort of an alternative market? Do you mean also like non trend strategies? You mean both of them?
0: Yeah, so including things like seasonality and carry and value and mean reversion, really just going beyond traditional trend and momentum.
1: Okay, so I think that first of all, I still believe in diversification, both in markets and in signals. There is value in a portfolio to trade different effects. And if you look at this year, you saw that pure trends, meaning like trend in the traditional space and like relatively slow trend have done fairly well. And then you have the alternative market space and the non trend space in general. They have maybe historically they have had even higher returns. And then maybe uh, this year they have lacked a little bit the trend space. And my point is that historically, this year it may have lagged a bit the pure trend, but the point is that I think that we don't have really a crystal ball to know at the beginning of the year what is the effect, what is the signal, or even what is the set of markets that are going to work best in the coming year. Because we don't have a crystal ball. My point is that you diversify as much as possible, and so I see a combination of all these things working well in a portfolio.
0: Your title at Man AHL is Director of Specialist Strategies. As far as titles I've encountered in the past, this is a pretty unique one. Can you explain to me what the title and the role entails?
1: What we mean by specialist strategy is any strategies which require uh, some specialist knowledge. The title comes from my boss, actually, and I quite like it, but it's not my idea. So what does it mean that requires some specialist knowledge? It could be like an asset class for which you require specialist knowledge because maybe you have to price it, you have to build some total return or you need some special knowledge for the signals that you are trading. Similarly, it can be like in the more traditional asset classes like future and cash equities, and then at that point, it needs to be like, you need to read some specialist knowledge in the strategy itself, like, for example, machine learning. So effectively, what it means that I look after the alternative market space, which does not include future foreign and cash equities, and machine learning in summary. So it is quite a varied group of strategies.
0: Beyond maybe colonizing space and selling moon property, do you think we've ultimately hit the final frontier of alternative assets, or do you think there's still new markets to be traded?
1: So I told you that for momentum, we need daily liquidity. And therefore, because of that, you need, so the space is not infinite. I'm not claiming that there is an infinite pool of market where we can uh, draw from. But I don't think that personally, I don't think that I've looked at all of them yet. And so there are still some that haven't looked at it yet. And in general, I think that there will be some that are not liquid today and they will become liquid. And I can give you some examples. You can think, for example, of lithium and cobalt. We know that they are going to be important for electric vehicle, for like the energy transition, for the transition to cleaner energy. But at the moment, they are not very liquid. Do I think that they might become liquid in the future? I don't see why not. The other thing is that there might be markets that you are not able to access today because of regulation. I can give you an example. An example is India. You can't access from offshore loads of Indian markets, Indian commodities. But recently, India has started to open up, to opening up. And what they have said, they have said that they have opened up like a very limited number of contracts and admittedly at the moment they are like contracts that they have a global equivalent and they are fairly correlated to their global equivalent. So maybe at the moment they are not very interesting, but it's a sign towards a direction of opening, which means that maybe in the future there will be more markets that we will be able to access there. So the space is not infinite, it's not over, but it's not infinite. But I think that it's also a space that is changing through time. So as some markets but you have the other direction as well. There might be some markets that we trade today and then tomorrow might not be liquid and you will have to remove it to the portfolio. And my point is that if you want to be in this space, you need to be flexible and you shouldn't consider removing a market like a failure. Because maybe we said it earlier, we spend maybe loads of effort to add these new markets. Then we take it out and you say, oh, I failed. You yeah, haven't failed. It's simply that you need to be flexible and the liquidity is changing and you just need to adapt. But in both ways. So it might go the other way as well.
0: Given the diversification potential of these newer, less liquid markets, do you think there's a benefit in introducing them in a smaller size, even though you're capacity constrained? Or for a large firm like Man ahl do you really need to think of it more as a binary exposure?
1: No, I don't think so. I believe in trading the size. You don't leave a footprint in the market. So if it's a small market, you're just small. So I strongly believe in that. But I would still add a small market and I would rather grow it as long as it's tradable and respects the property that we discussed earlier. I don't have a problem in putting in a small market, as long as with a small allocation, obviously. So, yeah, I'm all for that.
0: Speaking of markets that are opening up, like India, in July 2021, you were on a podcast where you spoke at length about the opportunities related to investing in China. And I thought it was a really fascinating podcast episode. I was hoping you could explain, as the Director of Specialist Strategies, Why you find China so appealing as a market, and whether your enthusiasm has waxed or waned since you recorded the episode last year?
1: The last question was about the smallest market. If I think that even a small market added to a portfolio will make a difference. And now, so you have to think that for many years, I looked at really the small uh, niche market. And then you look at China, which is like deep and diversifying So it seems like a very natural space to move towards. So Chinese markets are big. If you look at the commodity space and you take the 10 most traded contracts, by number of contracts, I mean, in the world, you see that in the commodity space, I think like about 8 out of 10 are Chinese commodities. If you look at the size of the Chinese equity market is second to the US by market cap if you look at that outstanding, like again, China is among the biggest. So we all know that is a huge economy. And therefore, we have like contracts you can trade markets that are big. But you know this because you saw my podcast. <laughs> anyway, so they are big, but are also diversifying. And that's true for all the asset classes I mentioned. So it's true for the equity space, that if you look at what is the most correlated in this index to the CSI 300, for example, you get the Hang Seng. But the correlation, give or take, is going to be around 60%. If you go to like other uh, major economies, you're probably below 50%. Then you go to the bond market. You have that the US and Europe have just come out of very low interest rates if not negative. And what you saw, you saw that China actually stayed above around 3%. So they didn't really see this low interest rate environment that US or Europe have lived. And now, when most of the countries in the world are hiking, not all of them, but most of them are hiking, what you see, you see that China is in sort of an easing cycle which makes even the bond market we are talking about diversification. But obviously, the most interesting in me is commodities. And it is commodities because you have markets which are unique to China that they don't have an equivalent. And you have markets that they might have an equivalent, but for reasons like local reasons or economical reasons, they are different from the global equivalent. So, I gave you a long explanation, but the two points are that they are, the markets are deep and diversifying.
0: So, one of the things I actually learned in that episode was that there were some really truly unique markets trading within China. So, for example, eggs and apples are markets that you don't find anywhere else in the world. Can you expand on some of these unique markets that most of us aren't even aware of and the opportunities for diversification?
1: You are looking at the agricultural sector there. You have, like, I mentioned eggs and apples, but there are, like, other markets as well. I mean, at least eggs and apples, we can agree that we know what they are. Now, if I tell you another one, which is jujube, it's a berry. But what I mean is that there is a list of agriculture that are, like, that are not traded elsewhere. as there is, like, some of them that they are uh, traded elsewhere, like you have soybean, right? Soybean, you can trade it in other countries in the world. But the point is that when you go to the agriculture, as I was trying to say earlier, you have like local weather, you have harvest season, even transportation, right? That enter into the equation. So even the markets in general, in agriculture, even the markets that are, they might have an equivalent, they are diversifying compared to their equivalent. And then the asset class, which for me is extremely fascinating, is industrials. And the reason why I find it fascinating is because you don't have many industrial traded elsewhere. And by industrial, I mean like material or metals that are used really in the industry. They are markets that are important to the Chinese economy, meaning that they are using the manufacturing, they are using in construction, and therefore they are fundamental to the Chinese economy and you can trade them. If you look outside China, the thing you can think of in that space is steel. But still, is not a big contract outside China. When you go in China, you have an entire sector and examples, I know you want some examples. So <laughs> the most fascinating one is probably glass, but you have an entire sector for that. And then uh, you have more metals than you can trade outside China as well. So all I'm trying to say is that there are plenty of unique markets. That is part of the fascination, really. But at some point, I don't know if I answered, you asked me if my enthusiasm towards China has waned through time or compared to when I did the podcast. I don't think I've answered it. I can tell you, actually did not. The reason is that from a year ago, things have changed. Compared to a year ago, we can now trade via a QF license. Some of the markets, some of the futures, the commodity futures listed in China from offshore. And that's really a huge development. This is something that is uh, relatively recent. So, okay, it's not the full list of markets that you can trade onshore, but it's a start. And I would say that it is maybe a third or something of that order. To me, that's a great sign. Hopefully, it's a sign that in the future, we will be able to access all of them from offshore. So definitely my enthusiasm. Actually, my enthusiasm is a peak, let's say. <laughs>
0: I think we would all certainly hope that access is an arrow that really only moves in one direction and it only gets greater over time. That said, from a risk management perspective, how do you think about accessing these markets knowing that there's the potential that regulators could reverse course at any time?
1: I am that think that you need to be flexible, as I said earlier. So to me, you capture what you can until you can. If there is a reverse course, you will adjust and we'll, you'll stop trading. So that's how I feel. Obviously, I also believe in being transparent, which means that if you want to invest in China, you need to be very clear that this is the kind of that this can happen. the portfolio will have to adjust to these kind of changes.
0: One of the consistent patterns we see in markets over time is that as market access is commoditized, we see the markets themselves become more highly correlated to traditional, more liquid markets. Do you think that the opportunity for additional diversification coming from these markets in China will ultimately be short-lived? Or do you think that there are potentially structural barriers to entry or true fundamental differences in the markets themselves that will continue to make them attractive as diversifiers over the long run?
1: I agree that if you have a market that is harder to access, you don't have that risk. And so not having that risk makes your life much easier. Now, what do I think about specifically about Chinese commodities is that they are quite big fundamental drivers to them. I mentioned earlier like local weather, harvest, the economy. So I do believe that these are like sort of the biggest driver to the market and they will stay. And I also think that if you look in general at global markets as an example, which sector is the most diversifying usually compared in like in a sort of macro portfolio? They tend to be commodities. They tend to be uh, diversifying compared to like financials, also between each other, right? And here what we are talking about, we are talking about the portfolio like that is dominated, the set of markets that is dominated by commodities. So I see that risk a bit less in this space. But more in general, I would say that if you have a market that becomes commoditized, what you see, you tend to see like faster momentum that disappear. So what I mean is that it depends even which kind of speed you trade. So if you think about, let's take the most liquid stocks you probably don't want to trade fast momentum, but we know that again, at different times, we might have very strong trend of the medium to slow speed in equities as well. So. To go back to your question, yes, harder to access markets, you don't have that risk at all. China specifically is commodity dominated, but in general, I think that depends also what you want to trade in a market.
0: All right, pivoting topics entirely here. I want to go back to machine learning for a moment. When you were laying out the topology of strategies you oversee in your role, you placed machine learning as a category unto itself which strikes me as pretty unique as most of the quants that I've spoken to in the past consider machine learning really to be a tool or a technique rather than its own unique category of strategies. So I was hoping you could explain why you treat it as a unique class of strategies.
1: So you're right, it's a technique, it's an approach. It's like you can apply everywhere and you could have just machine learning search inside each different team. In practice, the point is that when you do machine learning, a lot is about are you is about the infrastructure that you have to build, is about the models that you have to build, is about how you select the models, how you combine the models, how you validate the models. So if you have it spread out in many teams, what happens is that you are like other duplicating that effort, or you are not really getting the most out of the economy of scale. I would say so. If you have like a team which is focused on that and focus on uh, this is sort of the, the technique that we are going to use, this is sort of the methodology that we are going uh, to use, and then this sort of becomes a basis, it might be more effective. The other part of the answer is that is also focused, meaning that if you leave machine learning as a technique inside another team, you will go with the other priorities. And so it depends how much you believe in a project, right? Because if you really believe that the project can deliver performance, you really want to have like focus and you want to really get it prioritized. And that thing is harder if you split it inside many teams. I also believe a lot in collaboration, meaning that it's not that the machine learning team is isolated or doesn't work with the team. So, for example, if they're looking at machine learning in cash equities, what happens is that they will work with the cash equity teams. So there will be like regular catch-up. There will be like regular updates on how the project is going. And the cash equity team will be exactly on top of the research that machine learning is doing. So we are trying to get the most of the effect of having a focused team. In the meantime, working with the other teams that are specialists in the area that where this technique is applied.
0: How do you think about the problem of preventing machine learning from finding what's already been discovered by the other teams? Left unsupervised, it's really no surprise that machine learning is going to identify things like the major style premium, trend, value, and carry, and other such well-documented anomalies in the data. How do you make sure that you're going after the idiosyncratic, quote, less transparent opportunities?
1: you can analyze the strategy output. So you can analyze your output and look at how it correlates with everything else that we do. You can even neutralize some effects a priori. What I'm trying to say is that you can do it in the design stage, but I also believe that you always double check, which means that at the output stage, you should check what you're really capturing and how it correlates with, like you say, like factors or momentum or what you have in another portfolio, because the last thing you want to do, as I said earlier, you don't want to duplicate without realizing on something you trade already. My view on machine learning is that it needs to be adding something and doing something different. Otherwise, I'd go for some technique which is simpler and more transparent.
0: From our pre-call, I know that you're particularly excited about opportunities and systematic credit today, which Sort of runs counter trend from most of the other major quant firms I've spoken to who were really enthusiastic about systematic credit a few years ago and their enthusiasm seems to have waned a bit and they've largely gone quiet ever since. Why are you so excited today?
1: You're telling me that I got late into the space. I <laughs> it I'm a little late. No. I think that you're right. There were uh, quite a few launches of Quant Credit Fund a few years ago. But if you look in general, uh, credit space is dominated by uh, discretionary traders, I think. I think it's fair to say that despite these few launches, uh, it's still dominated by discretionary traders. So the Quant Systematic Credit is still a minority in the space. We did start working on it a few years ago but it takes a bit of time to get comfortable and uh, ready with the new asset classes it takes time because you need to build a framework to trade it and we are talking about hundreds of bonds that you want to screen now this is like the main difference right with system with discretionary you want to trade a broader set of bets and therefore the framework takes a bit more time in addition, you are in a space that is not a traditional space of quant, meaning uh, that it's a bit less liquid. We are used, uh, we said it many times in this podcast that normally we trade on a daily basis. Here, you might not be able to trade on a daily basis. You might send a trade that is not going to be filled. So you need to have some mechanism to deal with it as well. So what I'm trying to say is that you have to build a framework, but you also need to be comfortable with the execution, with the different profile of the strategy. And that takes time. So the reason why I'm excited today is because we have been working on it for a couple of years. And I feel that we have overcome these challenges and I start becoming comfortable with this as a class and with differences to my more natural space. But as I said, I don't think we are late at the game because quant are still a minority.
0: Knowing that you have a wide berth in the types of projects that you oversee, as you look forward today, what are the projects that you're really the most excited about?
1: I tend to get excited very easily. That's, uh, <laughs> that is one of my problems. But uh, I think that the last 15 years, I worked in a space in which there was of daily trading. And then uh, credit is uh, the first project that I've done in a space that wasn't daily trading. So what excites me today is to try to go to spaces that are less liquid, maybe not doing momentum, maybe doing some other strategies, but I would like to go to trade in a systematic way, asset classes which are not quant space and not just CTA, just not quant space. But I still am excited by doing things and machine learning, I told you earlier, it's not that these things don't excite me anymore, they do. But I think my next challenge is really to try to go to spaces that are uh, where that first assumption uh, where we started this call uh, has been removed. So spaces that we can't trade daily.
0: Well, we come to the last question of the podcast and it's the same question I've asked all my guests this season. As you look back on your career, what do you think your luckiest break was?
1: My first luck is to have ended up in a place where uh, I've enjoyed my job for 15 years because I don't think it's that easy to find a job that you really like for so many years and not just the job, even the place. So I do think that I'm being extremely lucky with the place. Now, how I ended up here, I have to say that that is also a bit of a lucky coincidence because I did an interview about several months before finishing the PhD and they were looking for somebody with a slightly different profile they wanted somebody with option experience and somebody available relatively soon so i was clearly not fitted for that role but they fit for that role but they said okay when you're finished you get back to us so i would say that honestly i haven't had many interviews and when i finished the phd i was fairly tired I just said, you know what, I'll just give it a go, as I told you earlier, and, and I took this internship. So I would say that part of was a bit lucky because if I was less tired, maybe <laughs> I would have interviewed a little bit more. So I think that my main luck has been in there.
0: Well, Juliana, thank you so much for joining me. This was really great.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.